Genesis chapter 29. This is God's word. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled a stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob. And he went in to her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. And we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. 
Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel. And he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his truth. Well, movies and uh, television shows are often filled with great rivalries. Uh, Boys and girls, you'll know about this. Superman has Lex Luthor. You, You know about Lex Luthor. Batman has the Joker, the Penguin, various enemies that Batman has. Spider-Man, again, has lots of enemies. I thought of the Green Goblin. I asked Toby and Joel about Pokemon. Our boys are obsessed with Pokemon at the minute. And I asked them who Ash's great rival is in Pokemon. But I was told it changes from season to season. And and Dad, you really shouldn't even try to understand it. But it is important, it seems, in storytelling to allow the hero of the story to meet a rival from time to time. Someone who seems to be their match in terms of skills and who can can put up a good fight. Whenever we think about examples of that in the Bible, it's most likely we we think of David and Goliath, don't we? The the great battle of scripture is David and and, and Goliath meeting. It, It does look like David has met someone who will overcome him even to death. Or maybe you think about Moses and Pharaoh. There's a back and forth in the book of Exodus. But I wonder, would you have thought about this passage? And the passage we have before us today, a story about Jacob. Jacob, the, the great swindler, the great deceiver, the, the great cheat. Well, he's met his match, hasn't he? If we look at verse 14, you can see what Laban says. Laban says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And I think that, that yes, he's referring to their family connection, but he's referring to, to something much more than that. Jacob was a liar and a cheater. He learned that from his mother. And now on meeting his uncle, his mother's brother, Laban can spot this, this family trait in Jacob. Jacob has well and truly met his match in Laban, who is long in the tooth when it comes to lying and cheating. Our passage today is one that is filled, filled with the difficulties of family life. 
And we see with, with absolute clarity that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things for us. The Bible deals with real life, with genuine difficulties. What is it like to live in, in a family full of sinners? We know what that's like, don't we? Because we live in families full of sinners. We are sinners ourselves. The Bible tells us what it's like here. But we learn that through all of the difficulty, through all of the mess, God is at work. God is at work. We learn that God reaches down in his grace into the mess of of human life, of family life, and God carries out his plans and his purposes of sending his rescuer. It's an important lesson. It's an important lesson that we learn that God is at work. Even when it doesn't seem to look like it, even when God is doing something that we don't expect, that, that we wouldn't do it that way, Yet God is at work in this world. And so what do we need to do? Well, we need to trust. We need to trust that God is working and that God knows what he is doing. Before we come to look at this passage together, let's pray to ask for God's help. Our God, you are the great God of all this world. And yet you have chosen to speak to us And so we thank you for the scriptures today, but we need your help to understand what you're saying. We thank you, God, that you are at work even here today. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in our minds and in our hearts to help us understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've tried to break the story down a little bit for us in in order to help us understand. And I have three points. I have three D's for us. Last week we had P's. This week we have D's. Uh, The first is the deceit of Laban. The second is the disappointment of Jacob. And then finally, the decrees of God. We'll begin with the deceit of Laban. Jacob has continued in his journey away from his family, his mother has said, go back to my homeland, go back to the land where I am from and find yourself a wife from there. It might be worth recapping some of the, the background to, to what's going on here. You'll remember who Jacob's grandfather is. Jacob's granda is Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham. The covenant was one-sided. It was a promise that God would be God to Abraham and to his children. And that through the seed or through a descendant of Abraham, the nations would be blessed. And so what that means is that in each generation, there is a child chosen by God through whom God's promise to bless the nations would be carried forward. So in each generation, there is a child of promise. One that is carrying forward the seed that would eventually bless the whole world. So Abraham had his son Isaac, and Isaac was the child of promise. In his generation, Isaac was that child. And then in the next generation, Jacob 
is that child. God had rejected Jacob's brother Esau. And God has worked even in the human sinfulness. We've seen this already. Even in human sinfulness, the deceit of of Jacob and his mother, Rebekah. God has worked in that to make sure that Jacob is the one receiving the blessings of the covenant. And we've seen that this is not because Jacob is a great guy. Jacob is not a nice person. He's, He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief. Remember what he did to his, his, his elderly father who was going blind. He, he dressed up as his brother in order to steal the birthright. But nonetheless, despite the fact that he's not a good guy, God has been kind to Jacob. God has been gracious to Jacob. And last Sunday, we learned that God broke into Jacob's life and turned it upside down. God came with unadulterated, undeserved grace. Jacob encountered God in a marvelous way through a dream, just as we encounter God each week here through his word. And so what we find today is that Jacob, the deceiver, who has been saved by the grace of God, comes to Laban's house And in Laban, Jacob meets his match. He gets his comeuppance, if you like, because Jacob had deceived his brother, but now Jacob is about to get deceived. At the start of the passage, Jacob meets Rachel. He meets her at a well, and we know now that if that's where you want to meet a girl, you go to a well. It seems that Jacob's really taken with her. He's really taken with her, so much so that, that he, was, he wanted to show off. And he got this amazing strength to roll away the stone from the well. The locals wouldn't do it. They needed a crowd of them to roll away the stone. But Jacob gets this strength and rolls away the stone to water Rachel's flocks. He's really taken with Rachel. And it's no wonder that he is because what are we told later? We're told that she is both beautiful of form and appearance. That likely means that she had a beautiful face and an attractive body. Rachel is a stunner and Jacob is smitten. But there's a problem. In those days, you didn't just meet a girl and then marry her. You know, you didn't just go to the well and that was it. You needed to have the approval of her family. Most importantly, you needed the approval of her father. And as we've said in, in her father Laban, Jacob has met his match. Laban is a world-class cheat. Okay, so, so Jacob, Jacob's been involved in Irish league cheating up to this point. Okay, that's not to, to denigrate the Irish league. It's a good league. They're good footballers in the Irish league. But Laban is like Premier League standard. Okay, he's, he's way above Jacob in terms of how good he is at being a cheat. He invites Jacob to stay and to work for him. And he even asks, he he says, you know, Jacob, what should your wages be? It seems, perhaps on the face of it, that that Laban's being a good guy. He, He says, because you're my relative, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? But it's a setup. Jacob is so smitten. 
He's so smitten with love and probably lust for Rachel that he volunteers wages of seven years labor for her. Now, I don't want to bore you with this this morning, but I thought it would be important that we did a little bit of mathematics. The usual dowry paid for a bride at that time in that culture was about 40 shekels, okay? The average wage was about three shekels a month. So Jacob was offering services amounting to about 250 shekels for something that was only worth 40 shekels. But Laban is not slow to accept this offer. He exploits Jacob's eagerness. Well, there's irony in this, isn't there? Because remember, Jacob exploited the eagerness of his brother Esau to get a bowl of stew. Well, Laban exploits Jacob's appetite in the same way. But the deception is still to come because I want you to notice in verse 19, Laban doesn't actually say, yes, you can marry Rachel. He simply says, it is better that I give her to you than to, I should give her to another man. Stay with me. He doesn't actually say that Jacob can marry Rachel. Laban is Premier League standard. And so we see what happens in verse 23. Laban waits for the seven years to be up. And then he completes his deception. He sends Leah in as Jacob's bride. Well, I want us to pause here, folks. I want us to pause and notice how easy it was for Jacob to be exploited. And the reason I want to say this is because what we know about Jacob is that he has had his life turned upside down by God. Jacob has been saved but it's still possible for him to be seduced by the things of this world. Laban uses his desire for Rachel to exploit Jacob. Should Jacob have been so easily exploited? Shouldn't his affections have been directed towards God? He should have been a bit more savvy about the the things of this world, the temporary things of the world. Well, I don't think he's backslid or, or anything like that. But I do think he is still in the process of learning what it means to put all of his trust, all of his hope in God instead of putting it in things of this world. And that's what the Christian life is like. I'm sure you remember whenever Sam Bostock was here and and he showed us that Jacob is a picture for us of what it means to be sanctified. That over time, God took this this rough piece of wood and eventually smoothed it out. And so for each one of us, there are ups and there are downs in the Christian life. There are highs and there are lows. At times when we feel as if we would go anywhere and do anything for the Lord. And then there are times of difficulty. Times of disappointment. Times when we fall into sin and we feel like we've let God down. Friends, in those times, I want you to know that you're not alone. This is the experience of God's people. From Jacob to David to Elijah 
to Peter, the great heroes of the Christian faith, and even so on through the centuries. I'm reminded of a, a, a quote from John Piper. Some of you will have heard of John Piper, a, a, an old and dear Christian pastor from America. He's been teaching Reformed doctrine for his whole ministry. I once heard him say this. He said, I thought I'd be more sanctified by now. I thought I'd be more sanctified by now. It's not the way many of us feel. We thought we'd be able to stand up to that sin and yet it's come upon us once again. I want you to know you're not on your own. But I also want you to know that God did not choose you because he thought there's somebody who can keep all my commandments all the time. That is not why God chose you. God chose you because he loves you. Because he wants you in his family. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes, Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, the Galatians thought that they could, they could cling on to their salvation. They, they thought perhaps God had chosen them, but now it was their turn. It was up to them to hold on to it, to keep it. The point that Paul is making is that God has begun your salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God will continue to carry it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. God didn't put you on a horse and then tell you now you have to cling on. Cling on tight until you get to eternity. No Christian hear this today. God is the one who is continuing to work in you. Despite your sin, God is the one who is smoothing you out over time, over a long, long time, far longer than we would have it take ourselves. And yet God is at work. The Christian life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And we continue, we endure through all of the setbacks, through all of the sinful slip-ups, we continue pressing towards the goal. We don't give up. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus and we press on. At moments like this, at, at moments like it was for Jacob, moments when we feel like we've let God down, when we've fallen into sinfulness once again, please do not wallow in your sin. Just get back on the horse. Press on towards the glory that awaits you in heaven because God has begun a good work in you and he is the one who will carry it on to completion. Well, that brings us to our second point. Jacob was deceived by Laban. What about his disappointment? Back to our passage, Jacob gives a huge amount to marry Rachel. He is besotted with Rachel. But then all, after all of that, after the seven years, Laban pulls the old switcheroo and Leah becomes Jacob's wife. Actually, interesting to find out that the deceit of Laban led to a practice in England for many years where no marriages took place after midday for fear that because of the darkness, the, once the veil was pulled back, it would be the wrong woman. 
I want to focus for a moment on Jacob's perspective, though. How does Jacob feel in this story? He has yearned for Rachel in all the ways that it's possible to yearn. And then eventually, due to the darkness and possibly a few too many glasses of wine, he doesn't notice that it's Leah who's been given as his wife rather than Rachel. But then verse 25, we get these classic words, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob had done everything he could think of doing to get married to Rachel. It was a long seven years, but to Jacob, it seemed like a few days. His love for Rachel was so great. Getting married to her would finally make all the work worthwhile. But after all that waiting and all that working in the morning, behold, it was Leah. I wonder if you can identify with how Jacob might have felt at this moment. No doubt he was disappointed. No doubt he was even angry with Laban. He, he had worked and worked for seven years. He thought he was getting Rachel, the love of his life, the reward for all his efforts. But in the morning, what a disappointment. It was Leah. You know, I, I hope that nobody has had this exact experience happen in their life. But I'm sure that some of us have had similar experiences. Experiences of disappointment and difficulty which seem to pop up out of nowhere. It can often come from a feeling that we don't deserve to have bad things happen to us because we have been good people. We seem to believe in some sense of karma or, or something like that. We think that God should repay us for the good things we do in life. You will often hear people say something like, why do bad things happen? To good people. Now that question might come from a genuine enough place, but it's it's based on a poor assumption. It's based on the assumption that God has to give us something, that God owes us health or wealth because of our effort and behaviour. There's a name for that. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a toxic poison in the church. We're tempted to believe it though, aren't we? It means that when something bad happens to us, a diagnosis, an accident, somebody in the family, whatever it might be, our immediate reaction is to look at God and say, but God, I was good. I was good. I don't deserve this. I was good. God, you owe me. But if we spent any time reading the Bible, we know it doesn't work like that. If we accept that God gives grace to undeserving sinners, then we have to accept the results of sin. We have to accept the fall. What happened with Adam and Eve, well, that comes against us. It might be in sickness. It might be in death. It might be in being wronged by someone like Jacob was. Whatever it might look like for you. The Christian response is not to shout out at God and cry, you owe me, God. Christian response is to humbly accept that God is working. God is at work through the trials and through the tests of this life. And by the way, this life, this is the short bit. This life is the short bit on the way to an eternal life of peace and joy. 
I was looking at some contrasts between the true gospel and any false gospel at last week's midweek. Here's one that's appropriate. This is from Tim Keller. The false gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself. Since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The true gospel, that's the false gospel. The true gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know that I am not to blame. All my punishment fell on Jesus. And that while he may allow this for my training, God will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Jacob was hugely disappointed in the morning. In the morning, it was Leah. His efforts, his work didn't pay off the way he hoped. He was well and truly schooled in the art of deceit by Laban. But as we read on, we see that God is not deceived. We come to our final point, the decrees of God. One commentator that I find really helpful in this series is called Derek Kidner. Kidner says this. He says, The words, behold, it was Leah, are the very embodiment of anticlimax. And this moment, a miniature of man's disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. Yet, the story reveals that God, not Laban, had the last word. The deceiver Jacob was deceived, And the despised Leah was exalted to become the mother of, among others, the priestly and kingly tribes of Levi and Judah. Verse 31 makes it plain for us. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. God is at work. This is something we've been learning throughout this whole story. Right back from the beginning, I don't know if you can remember back to last year, 2021, and the tale of Abraham. This story has read like an episode of EastEnders or Middle EastEnders. But in the midst of all of the disappointment, all of the disaster, all of the dysfunction in this one family, God is at work. God's decrees are at play. He knows what he's doing. And through this line coming from Leah, from Leah, not from Rachel, through the deception of Laban, through the disappointment of Jacob, God's decree is that the one seed, the child of promise, the Messiah of the whole world, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus would come through Leah and her son Judah. I'm going to be thinking about the family line and history of Jesus in a few weeks' time as we begin our Advent series approaching Christmas. But just for now, let me point out, God works. God works in the midst of human deception, human disappointment. God is at work to bring about his plans and his purposes. And if God was working in the middle of this horrible family, this family of sinners and liars and cheating and stealing, 
Jacob and Laban trying to outdo one another in deception. If God is working here to bring about the birth of Jesus, the saviour of the world, then God is at work in your life. Indeed, think about what God has already done for you by sending Jesus. Think about what God has done for you by bringing you here to this place today to hear the gospel. God has given you ears to hear. He's given you a heart to believe. Think about what God has done by dying on the cross. Through death, God's decrees are at work. Dying upon the cross for your sins. Out of his great love and mercy and grace. Let me pray for us.